0: Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today?
1: I am just fine.
0: I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and non-troversies, Joss Whedon. Got a big profile in the New York Magazine. Link just dropped a couple hours before this tape. We scrapped. We were going to do a whole segment. We scrapped it so we could talk about this breaking... Uh, news that Joss Whedon is still kind of a dick. Um, uh, Here are the headlines. Here are the headlines from this big profile, okay? He denies uh, being abusive towards Charisma Carpenter. Charisma Carpenter, of course, had said that uh, she got pregnant uh, and then he fired her from the show Angel because uh, she she got fat. Um, uh, He denies having sex with people uh, from the cast and crew on set, uh, but he does not deny having affairs with them. So, you know, we're kind of splitting some hairs here. Uh, he denies threatening Gal Gadot, uh, Wonder Woman, who he directed in the Justice League reshoots, uh, implying in his uh, denial that she's too dumb to understand what he actually said. Uh, and he, also, uh, he denies changing the skin tone of black characters in Justice League, saying uh, that Ray Fisher is a shitty actor. That's literally what he said. It's, it's, not, it's not that uh, I, did, I was— He did
2: not say the word shitty actor. He did not. Well, no, but I he didn't, said I didn't he was a in bad quotes. actor say... in both sense s- of the Term. I didn't
0: say it in quotes, did I? I'm I'm uh, paraphrasing here. When you when I want to quote Joss Whedon, I'll quote Joss Whedon. Uh, but I don't think that this is an unfair characterization of what he said. He said that Ray Fisher's a bad actor, and that's why I cut him out of the movie. Um, and he said that uh, Zack Snyder and maybe his minions more than Zack Snyder uh, used the issue to unfairly attack Whedon as a racist. Uh, and he uh, admits to having sex addiction, like Kevin Spacey and Harvey Weinstein before him. Um, I uh, I found the whole thing pretty fascinating because there's a lot of uh, a lot of cluelessness on Joss Whedon's part, I would say. And there is uh, I think uh, I think he, I think he thinks he's been treated unfairly. I think he thinks he's been treated unfairly. Alyssa, do you think that's fair to say? Uh,
1: I think it is fair to say that Whedon thinks he has been treated unfairly. Um, but this profile is amazing, both for the way Whedon conducts himself in it and also just as as a sort of artifact of contemporary the contemporary culture of culture right I mean the most telling thing about the entire profile is both he and his ex-wife apparently have the same diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder um, which you know is not to belittle anyone who has complex PTSD. It's a real syndrome. You know, it has a serious impact on people's lives, but the extent to which sort of therapeutic culture has taken over pop culture in general. And the fact that, you know, it is, you know, it is a diagnosis that has become sort of an identity that can be used to explain everything um, is, just and it's kind of amazingly apt that it comes up in the profile this way of like both halves of a former couple um one claiming that his terrible behavior towards his ex-wife and other people is driven by this diagnosis and the other person saying that you know her ex-husband's terrible behavior caused this diagnosis in her right it's like it's a it is almost too meta to be believed um and the thing that it Put me in mind of was actually parl Siegel wrote this really interesting argument for the new yorker earlier this month um, it's it's uh you know the case against the trauma plot and it's about how you know all stories now are sort of looking backwards for explanations as opposed to being driven forward by a plot or to the extent that they're driven forward by plot it is in service of the so sort of the return to the past to try and figure out where a characters motivations come from and what their actions are driven by and this profile is both such a textbook example of that storytelling mode and an illustration of the flimsiness of it uh it's just amazing i mean you know whedon essentially claims to have been excavating his past particularly his childhood um and yet the profile is sort of devoid of detail about sort of what this childhood consisted of, right? I mean, it's apparently his brothers bullied him and his parents were kind of combative drunks. And, you know, there was a childhood tragedy involving like a yeah, drowning what, of a school one of his friend.
0: Childhood, yeah, one of his childhood friends died in a pond. And he just like kind of tosses this off in the profile as maybe this yeah,
1: is it's, why I'm like
0: this. I don't um,
1: know. but
0: It's
2: all kind of like the cave scene in Avengers 2. Ugh. Right.
1: But even if this stuff is an explanation for, you know, cheating on your wife a lot and being a kind of rotten person consistently in a professional context over literally decades, um, like what? what is it? Tell us what is it useful to know this and to know about this right i mean the much more interesting thing happening in the profile is the extent to which whedon was an avatar of a certain kind of fandom especially in sort of the early late 90s early aughts um where you know sort of the creator became synonymous with the work and became in some ways even more important than the work itself like being a fan of Joss Whedon was an identity. It was a cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it was obviously not one that was sustainable. And so the way that fans are reckoning with this development is much more interesting than any explanation Whedon could possibly put forth for his behavior, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it still seems like kind of a jackass. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, the, the attempt well, to let's... explain that just it's, – it's not even that it's not exculpatory. It's not interesting.
0: Yeah. Alyssa, let me let me ask, uh, and Peter, we'll, I'll come to I'll come to you in one sec. But uh, Alyssa, I, I want to ask you as as a a feminist reader of pop culture, yep. uh, and as somebody who I believe you were into yep. Buffy, mm-hmm. right? You were a uh, yeah. Uh, do you do you how much of how much of this fall from grace has to do with specifically with people feeling betrayed by him? Like they thought they knew him, and they thought that this was uh, you know one of their people, and it turns out that a lot of his Posturing uh is a cover for his own bad behavior.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think one thing the profile gets at really well is the extent to which Whedon made himself accessible to fans, that he you know, participated in message boards and had, you know, uh even went to some sort of fan get togethers and stuff. He was, you know, he made himself a consumable object. And it seems pretty clear that, you know, Whedon kind of embraced you know the feminist readings of his work and positioned himself as a feminist in part because you know it made him popular it got him laid it was you know i think that some of you know his interest in women's stories is you know genuine and interesting um and i think buffy is great television whether or not you think joss whedon is a good person in some ways it is even better television for its sort of complexity and darkness. I mean, there's a there's a subplot where um, you know, Buffy begins a relationship with a vampire who tried to rape her at one point. And this was something that, you know, some very straightforward feminist readings of Buffy, you know, sort of painted as, you know, read not unnaturally as sort of troubling or problematic, but that was sort of what was interesting about the story that Buffy at that point was, you know, working through some of her trauma from vampire slaying by engaging in a relationship that was not super healthy for her, that, you know, involved risk and kind of giving up some power. And so to the extent that, you know, the feminism of Whedon's work is complex, that his, you know, his heroines are not always making choices that are, you know, heroic or fit neatly to a simple story of empowerment that makes that work more interesting um and whedon himself you know clearly is a more complicated person than the one he benefited from being perceived as being for a very long time
0: uh peter as a uh, as a as as both an editor and a consumer of pop culture, what did you what did you make of this piece? Because it is a big sprawling piece, considering that it is kind of only focused on one person and uh, his his rise and fall. I was I I I was curious about some of the choices. I mean, I one criticism that I've seen pop up again just in the last hour or so is that the the author seems more. Uh, seems to agree with Joss Whedon on certain things. That's not how I read it. That is not how I read that piece at all. It it seems pretty damning to me from start to finish.
2: So I think what's interesting about the piece is that it doesn't provide you with a tidy conclusion. And that's going to frustrate some people. And I think, you know, from an editorial perspective, you could maybe make an argument that it's a little too sprawly, um, that it uh, sometimes does that on the one hand, it seems to want to sort of capture the whole online argument about Joss Whedon, like, from, you know, the late 1990s until now in a single piece. And on the other hand, there are places, as Alyssa said, in particular with, like, Joss Whedon's backstory and his childhood, where it seems to sort of suggest something without actually following the rabbit hole, you know, like following that that thread enough, right? And, And you could perhaps you could make an argument, maybe, that this piece should have followed uh, a a single thread or, or or a smaller number of threads a little bit more. Um, but actually I actually think it's just this is a really interesting piece of journalism because it doesn't demand that you come away with one clear conclusion about Joss Whedon. Um, and the thing that that jumped out at it to me most was uh, was the way it treated internet culture. And Sonny, I want to actually ask you about this because a big part of it comes uh, comes in and when it, in the Justice League passage when it talks about the rivalry between Joss Whedon fans and between uh, Zack Snyder fans online, and there's this thing that the the uh, the author does throughout the profile where fandom is just sort of referred to as like a as an online hive mind, right? And it's like Joss Whedon fans have been saying these things, and there's no place where they are saying them, right? Like you sort of assume it's on Twitter or on message boards or on Facebook or something, right? There's no, but there's they're not quoted and they're not and there's no sort of like source for where these arguments are happening. And it works somehow or another because we now all just assume that that like fandom that there are these there are these like almost like AI hive swarm brain fandom uh, creatures that just like live online and have these uh, and have these group collective personalities and in some ways a lot of that not all of it but a lot of that is an outgrowth of the culture of the fan culture that sprung up uh, in large part around Buffy the Vampire Slayer and so just it's its just a really interesting yeah. choice to treat to treat Whedon fans as a character who yeah. don't who like don't need to be. I mean, it's not that there's no quotations of individual. There yeah. there are a couple of little individual you know quotes here, but mostly it's that Whedon fans are their own character. That's a really interesting yeah. choice, and then, I mean, and then you know what what Alyssa said, I, I thought was was just spot on. Um, the this piece, I don't know whether it is actually engaging in it itself or whether it is showing us that Joss Whedon is doing this, but this piece does an awful lot of sort of. Um, it gives, it shows us a world in which all problems and all bad behavior are medicalized because when you medicalize them, when you say this is a therapeutic, this is something that's wrong with me, uh, I have an ailment, then it excuses your bad behavior, right? Like this Whedon's special form of PTSD, whatever it is that he was diagnosed with, he is deploying that. And I'm not saying he doesn't have it and I'm not saying it's not a real diagnosis or or that it doesn't actually affect people here. But there is a, a there is something that he is doing here, where he is talking about this as like a as something that that like he has no control over, and therefore he can't really be in some sense can't be blamed for what he did, right? And so it it, it is it is a form of excuse making, I think, at least on Whedon's part. I don't know if the if the piece is actually supportive of that theory or not. Again, I think it's it's a somewhat complex piece.
0: Uh, Peter, I I just want to push back uh, very, very briefly against the idea that the piece doesn't have a tidy conclusion. Uh, This is the uh, this is the closing of the of of the of the profile. Uh, People had been using, quote, every weaponizable word of the modern era to make it seem like I was an abusive monster. End quote. Whedon said, quote, I think I'm one of the nicer showrunners that's ever been. End quote. And here's 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 how I read this, both as a as a writer and an editor uh, and just a reader, is he he has been given the rope to hang himself. Uh, the, the whole yes. point of this, the whole point of this uh, rehabilitation tour is for people to say, oh, Joss Whedon has learned his lesson. He understands what he's done wrong. Um, you know, he's going to be different and changed and better. And I read that and I think he doesn't have any clue. He doesn't have any clue why he's in trouble in the first place. He doesn't have any clue how to fix himself. I I read that as like, don't trust this guy and don't give him another chance. Yeah,
1: I mean, this, this is a piece where the writer not only hands him the rope, but like hands him the wood and the nails to build the gibbet, right? I mean, early on in the piece, you know, Whedon tells her that he has been advised, like say he has to go to the bathroom whenever he doesn't want to answer a question and needs time to compose himself. And then the writer has him do that multiple times throughout the profile, right? I mean, she sort of shows us the artifice here um, and the kind of uh, the self-pity and sort of self-exculpatory nature of everything Whedon is doing. It just it's I mean, everything he says about sort of his own recovery. His second marriage. I mean, it just all comes across as so flimsy. Um, so I, the idea that it sides with Whedon in any way is, you know, is difficult for me to understand as a reading. It seems pretty clear to me.
2: I, I don't think it sides with Whedon, but what it doesn't do is like is is stage a confrontation. Where Whedon gets shown the error of his ways. What it doesn't do is like wrap up in a like a here's here's the truth about Joss Whedon. What it does is like you said, Sonny, is it lets Whedon tell the story as he wants to tell the story, and I in at least a lot of it is is fairly damning um, no. to to Whedon and, and shows that Whedon has not uh, has not reckoned with. His behavior and is finding ways to avoid doing so.
0: Yeah, uh, to, to your to your broader point about fandoms and the way it's treated, and the way fandom in general is treated in the piece, and specifically the Whedon fandoms versus uh, Snyder fandoms are treated. Um, I thought I, I think I think you're both right that this is the most interesting idea in the piece, and that I also think that the author doesn't have any idea what to do with it, and like really kind of fumbles um, fumbles with it. And part of the problem is that. I th- there there isn't there is a notion in this uh, not just that they are monolithic, but they are uh, that these fandoms are so rooted in ideology and uh, and and whatever else that it it kind of it strips them of all agency. So there's there's a very weird passage in this where uh, the author is talking about how, you know, oh, at, at one point. Zack Snyder was super problematic because he made 300. And that was a movie that people said was anti-Persian. But now uh, Joss Whedon is the problematic one because he's a harasser. And how are the people who are deciding what to watch based on what's problematic supposed to know what to do? And it's just like maybe that's actually a really dumb and bad way to filter your art. Like maybe that's actually a really dumb way to try and decide what is good and what is bad and what is worth watching and what is worth supporting is – Filtering all of these things through your ideological proclivities and and you know uh, uh, trying to decide who is the good guy and who's the bad guy based on like who you think might they they might have voted for at some point in the past. But it's also I mean you do
2: need to disclose your role as the the king of the Snyder mm-hmm. super.
0: I am a I am but a cog in the release the Snyder cut clockwork. I am uh, I am not the the mastermind here at all.
1: But what's interesting? I mean. Whether or not that's a stupid way to view your art, it's very interesting that it has become such powerful currency and currency that, you know, like HBO and Warner Brothers was going to listen to that, you know, finding a way to re-narrativize Snyder uh, became sort of a powerful tool for the fandom. And look, I'm someone who has long argued that Snyder is more interested in women then he's often given credit for the fact that you know deborah snyder produces his projects that he has this sort of productive working relationship with his wife that um has you know sort of really elevated women's stories in some interesting ways like i you know i've m- I made that argument before it was cool um but yeah, I mean, I, sucker punch hive. Yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> uh, man, I wrote my defense of sucker punch back on Blogger. That was a long time ago. Um, and so, you know, I think that the rise of that kind of thinking as currency is something that Whedon made possible, and that he's now sort of run afoul of. Um, and so, I think that's the more the more interesting part of that section of the piece.
2: So what did you guys make of the somewhat extended interview with the, uh, the, the writer Rebecca X, um, at one, who at one point was known as Rebecca Rand Kirshner, uh, who wrote for several seasons of Buffy, and I, seems to have like a really conflicted relationship with her own feelings yeah. about Joss Whedon in a way that I thought was really interesting, in that it suggested that... It at least raised the possibility that what Joss Whedon was doing on set was not okay, but also not exactly wildly uncommon on on sets in in Hollywood. Right. I mean, you know, and also maybe not nearly not maybe not maybe I don't want to say not nearly, but maybe not quite as bad as some of the Joss Whedon is a monster people have made out right there's this quote um here where she first she talks about uh hit whedon calling her fat but say when she was pregnant right so uh, the uh, a story we've heard before but she says it was kind of a joke now she says also that was a joke that hurt and i don't think it was okay but i did understand that it wasn't necessarily meant as just like a cruelly sneering thing it was it was a little bit of a it was a it was an inappropriate joke and then she says and she ends this quote with, "My point is, it was a dick move, but I wouldn't call it abuse." Yeah, and making that distinction here it is is kind of interesting, and allows for some for some gray space in the like, what do we think of Joss Whedon's bad behavior, you know, uh, question.
0: That that whole section reminded me of the bit in The Dark Knight uh, where Batman talks about how the Joker attracts unstable minds. <laughs> I mean, it, like that—that—that—that's uh, literally the thing that came to mind. Was like, here, Joss Whedon is a sort of person who, uh, and the, and the 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 woman ad- says this later in the piece. Like, I find myself attracted to abusive relationships. Like, I am like I'm particularly pr- uh, susceptible to being in abusive relationships. And I, uh, you know, I like I I just I I don't know that that's the best defense of him, but it is the best. It's the best defense of him in this piece. Is like. He was kind of a dick. Being kind of a dick isn't necessarily the same as being, uh, you know, a perpetrator of Me Too style uh, capital offenses.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think it's I think it's probably too long as a section of the piece, um, just, you know, from a sort of editorial perspective. But it gets at these sort of the mixed feelings that people have about Whedon. Um, And I think and about the fact that drawing that line between clearly abusive behavior and someone just being relentlessly unpleasant can be difficult.
0: Yeah. Uh, So what do we think? Uh, Is this profile of Joss Whedon a controversy or an controversy, Peter?
2: Well, Joss Whedon is a controversy of a sort, right? Like, that's why this profile exists is the profile itself. I don't mean I don't. I, mean, I, 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 don't know. I think I, the answer is is no. I think the profile itself is a controversy, but Joss Whedon's behavior
0: and career is a controversy, and so yeah. Uh, Alyssa, what do we? What do you think will, here? Let me let me let me clarify. Uh, do you think that Joss Whedon's uh, continued existence on planet Earth as a human being <laughs> is a controversy or a non
1: Um I think <laughs> it's non-troversial, but only because Hellmouths don't exactly don't actually exist, and therefore we can't throw him into one.
0: Uh, I think I think it's a controversy that he has no idea why uh, people hate him, and he has no idea how to get himself out of this hole. He's a, he strikes me as like r- weirdly unself-aware for somebody who is as self-aware as he kind of portrays himself to be. So boo Joss Whedon Uh, if you enjoy this show uh, and who doesn't except for Joss Whedon it's great please head over to atma.thebulwark.com where Peter uh, and I will discuss the greatness of Scream and make the case uh, to Alyssa that even fraidy cats like her should go see it Uh, and now on to the main event Macbeth the tragedy of Macbeth it's director Joel Cohen's first solo effort. He did not make this with his brother Ethan, uh, which is, it's somewhat, somewhat controversial. Um, it is, of course, the retelling of Shakespeare's classic uh, tragedy of the Scottish noble-turned-king-turned-madman-turned-tragic-dire, I guess. Tragic, tragic <laughs> victim tragic of death. <laughs> um uh But it, uh, it, 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 so here's the thing about uh, filmed... Shakespeare is that it it, it has this weird dual problem where if you try and film it as a play, you run into all the problems of a film play. And if you try and film it as a movie, you run into all the problems of Shakespeare in the modern uh, world, which is that it doesn't quite make sense. I mean, the only the only Film, I think, that has really squared that circle nicely is Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, uh, but that was so artificial and so full of artifice that it was it was different. Uh, what they what what Joel Cohen does here, I think, is very interesting. He basically uh, avoids this trap by making it look like a film play by shooting every scene uh, as if it was built for the stage, but then filming that like it's a movie. I mean, it's it looks like uh, a a movie that takes place. On about a thousand different stages, which is interesting and different, not quite how it has been done before. It calls to mind the German expressionist films of uh, of the 1920s and 30s. Lots of sharp angles, lots of shadows, lots of uh, real stylization it's here. It's very
1: the Seventh um, Seal meets Ansel Adams. Yeah, or
0: like the cabinet of Doctor Caligari, or you know stuff like that, right? Um, uh, Denzel Washington plays Macbeth here, um, and I am not—I am not the Macbeth expert. I'm going to kick this to Alyssa to, to kick us off here in a second, but I—I I am not the the Macbeth expert. But I feel like this is a slightly older Macbeth than one usually sees, um, and I—I I, I like that treatment of the character as opposed to some of the the younger Macbeths because it makes him, and it works specifically with the Cohen brother style because it makes him feel kind of more pathetic than a younger Macbeth. He's like, he's this is the last gasp of somebody who has spent his whole life being passed over time and again despite being, you know, competent and thinking he deserves more. Um, He uh, feels a little bit henpecked by Lady Macbeth in a way that I don't know that I've seen before. Um, And I... I uh, I love what Denzel does with this just in terms of line readings. Um, there's this just wonderful moment kind of late in the film as he has entered full Mad King phase uh, where he, he tells a character to take thy face hence. And it just made, has made me laugh at, uh, both times that I've seen it. Um, uh also great, Catherine Hunter as the three weird sisters, the witches. Uh, she is a like a, a veteran stage actor, but also kind of a contortionist. She's doing weird, interesting things with her body that seem uh, almost supernatural. And Stephen Root as the wacky porter. You know, making sex jokes. Love love a good sex joke in a Shakespeare movie uh, or play. And. He is perfect here. Um, I have to. uh, So I'll be honest. I watched this twice. I watched this once during award season, and I was kind of like, "Ah, okay, this is fine. It's Shakespeare. I like Shakespeare. Macbeth. It's Macbeth. Macbeth is one of the best Shakespeare plays. Everybody, everybody loves Macbeth." But it didn't do a ton for me. I watched it again a second time with subtitles on in glorious four K on my TV, as opposed to a crappy, you know, ten eighty p stream, like a like an idiot. Um, And uh, it just it. I I I realize now that I basically have to read Shakespeare. I just have no ear for it. This it's a lot like musicals for me. I need I need the subtitles because I uh, otherwise I just get kind of lost and confused. Um, but I am a schmuck, and we all know that. Alyssa, you are the uh, Shakespeare expert on the show. I think. Um, how uh, does this compare to other adaptations of Macbeth that you have seen? So I
1: think the most interesting thing about it as an adaptation, aside from Washington's performance, which I think is tremendous, is actually what uh, the uh, what it does with a secondary character, um, the the Thane of Ross, um, who is played by um, Alex Hassel, who's I think primarily a British stage actor. And um, I want to back up a minute because one of the mysteries of Macbeth um, is sort of known in in the collective scholarship of it is the mystery of the third murderer because when Macbeth sends um, two men to kill Banquo he you know he only assigns two of them the job but in the play a third murderer shows up he has like six lines he's basically a non-character and there has been a scholarly debate about about who the third murderer is supposed to be because he just sort of materializes in that scene and he's not seen anywhere else. Um, There are some people who think it's supposed to be Macbeth himself who is showing up to make sort of make sure the job gets done and in this version the third murderer is Ross and you know Ross is another one of you know Duncan's Thanes. he's a lord and but the you know the movie makes a couple of other changes too right he is both He shows up at the murder of Macduff's wife and son, and then is the person who comes and informs Macduff that his wife and child are dead. He, um, unlike in the original play, you know, Macduff is the person who kills Macbeth, as happens here in the adaptation, but then it's Macduff who presents. Uh, Macbeth's head and his crown to Malcolm, the son of Duncan. Here it's Ross who does it again. Um, And then finally, like the last scene in the the adaptation, we see that he has spared Banquo's son Fleance and is fleeing with him on horseback. Uh, He's sort of done it secretly. And so Ross emerges as this sort of secondary manipulator in the play, perhaps a more sophisticated player of the game than Macbeth himself. Um, He... You know he has managed to appear loyal to Macbeth until the very end of the play, even to the extent of carrying out one of his uglier schemes—the murder of um, Macduff's wife and his son. But at, you know, he but he manages to maintain Macduff and Malcolm's favor, even as at the end he is riding off with the child, who presumably you know, it is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Banquo will give rise to a line of kings. And, you know, that was sort of intended to be um, taken literally in when the play was originally written. You know, um, James I was thought to be descended from Banquo and, you know, the real Scottish um, figure to some extent. And so, you know, weaving in the contrast between This older man who acts ultimately, you know, sort of in a way that is he sees as calculating, but is sort of rash to gain a kingship. While at the same time, this younger man is working much more subtly behind the scenes. I thought added, you know, just an interesting depth to the movie, Um, which is not to say that Macbeth itself is not a deep play. Uh,
0: Shallow. But I
1: I thought that was a really interesting set of small alterations that Added up to something genuinely novel um, in a way that I thought was quite striking.
0: Peter, you described this movie over text to us as art house Braveheart, which I I thought was v- fairly amusing. What what were you what were you getting at there? Oh, look,
2: it's just about you know the Scottish kings and stuff. But right, it, like it's a. It's this movie is so self-consciously arty in a way that I truly love and appreciate but it's like in if you compare it to something like Braveheart which is just such a like a classic you know late 90s populist Oscar bait like you know a crowd pleaser I think it was actually a summer release which is sort of rare for that sort of thing right but just like feels like they they feel very different right um uh but they're both in some ways about you know, Who's going to be king of Scotland? Um, and, uh, and that's all I was really getting at. Um, uh, no, this is this is an interesting movie in in a bunch of ways. Uh, you pointed out the art direction, Sonny, and I think that's just the thing that is really interesting here, just because of the uh, the way that it kind of channels German expressionism. As it happens, I uh, I watched. Tim Burton's Batman Returns just a couple of days before watching this and it was really kind of notable how much well, I don't mean to say that that uh, this movie drew from Tim Burton's Batman films at the same time, they both are working from the same sort of yep. um, sort of inspirations. Uh, and it's just really I mean it's just a, an incredibly striking film to to look at. And I found myself thinking, that this is almost the kind of movie that you could you could pitch to to people who like weird cinema. This is not a populist film, right? It's not like a, a big crowd pleaser for, you know, that's going to make $200 million at the box office. But you could pitch this to a certain type of person who doesn't particularly care for Shakespeare, but just likes cool sounds and images. Because this movie just sort of, it works almost independent of the language. And I'm not again, I'm not saying the language doesn't add anything that the story is not important um or or anything like that. but but the 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 film is is just so like' it's, it's such a wonderful mood to just sort of sink into entirely on its own, apart from the actual Shakespeare act aspect of it, which is the script. And so it's just really interesting on 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 that front. Um, but the other thing that struck me here. That i just wanted to raise for you guys is i i was actually just taken by the fact that it is 500 years after this play was first performed a little more and we're still watching like people it is still a a, like a non-scholars non-erudite like weird like people who are not like shakespeare studies professors still watch shakespeare and I kind of was thinking that Shakespeare is, in a weird sense, the most successful IP in pop culture history, right? Like, this well, is – Shakespeare is the franchise that just won't – that won't go away and won't – people – because people keep, right, rebooting and recycling and remaking this stuff in a way that is – like, you can't think of another example. It's not that other art doesn't survive for hundreds
0: of years or even thousands. There's the Bible. right? There's various books of the Bible. But the, but the Bible the – yeah, is Homer – and, and 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 Okay, Virgil. right. Again, it's
2: not that art that other
0: art doesn't survive, but it basically There's is a literal pantheon of gods.
2: Maybe you could argue that this is that the the Greek gods are, are competing here. But <laughs> But I just think it's it's like uh <laughs> Like this I, is I, like, I think that your Shakespeare take your Shakespeare point. is a weird kind of franchise historically that like that hollywood now just treats as like well we can make we can actually make the original like uh like they did here or we can use this as source material for west side story for
0: you know uh, 10 things i hate about you for right but, like but and we can just adapt all of this stuff and yeah, but that's and... that's been yes i mean yes but that's been shakespeare for for like the last 200 years right? I, is it like very, yes that's not, kind it's of my not point so much, it's and not so, so much i'm the... really
2: excited for like the to you know for the my uploaded the uploaded everlasting version of myself to watch a spider-man adaptation 500 years from now
0: spider-man spider hamlet
1: I, I mean i think that you know the omnipresence of shakespeare is sort of self-perpetuating right because the language um and the plots are so well known that it's a kind of irresistible temptation if you're a director or an actor to try and take them on and find something new in them. And, you know, to see the total calmness with which Washington delivers the, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its petty pace from day to day speech after uh Lady Macbeth has committed suicide. Is you know sort of novel to watch that sort of deep quiet, or you know the the um, the fight scene that precedes that moment where he um, takes on um, Young Siward, who is armed with a sword and does so with this kind of crazed courage because he believes that the witch's prophecy that he can't be killed by a man born of woman essentially makes him. Invincible, right? I mean, that's a scene where he's, you know, he's taking his bare hands up against a guy with a sword, and you know, winning because with again this sort of full equalizer. Amazing, Elan. um You know, and at the same time, I thought um, um, uh, Corey Hawkins, who plays McDuff and who was excellent in uh, in the Heights as well. We did, we talked a little bit earlier this year about just how wonderful and charismatic he is. You know, he is really interesting in that role in part because of, you know, the the vulnerability he lets his character feel. I mean, the moment when he finds out that his wife and son are dead and he is sort of urged to you know put his grief aside so he can take effective vengeance on macbeth and he says you know i shall do but first i must also um but i must also feel it like a man you know he he transforms this idea that grief is weakness into the idea that feeling it is and letting it pass over him and through him is manly in a way that you know the other characters around him can't appreciate you know it's just it's it's incredibly fun to see an actor as important in the American pantheon as Washington take his crack at Macbeth, but also to see a young rising actor like Hawkins, um, you know, step into this lesser role and be incredibly distinctive in it.
0: What did you make of uh, Frances McDormand in this? We haven't really talked about Lady Macbeth at all. Lady Macbeth is, you know, kind of one of the most famous uh female characters in in any art form uh still still extant um and i feel like i i i feel like i'm alone in this but it, she, she just it did nothing for me it like i i i thought she was like honestly i thought the lady macbeth sections of the of the movie were among the weaker in the film
1: i think she's better in the early going um but she's definitely playing lady macbeth as sort of more mannered than washington is playing Macbeth. He plays Macbeth, you know, with a very naturalistic approach to the language, and she often is just a little, you know, it, she. It seems like she is performing Shakespeare, whereas Washington is being Macbeth. Um, yep. And I thought, in particular, you know, the ver- the kind of fussiness and showiness of her performance in the you know out out damned spot sequence. Um, is a real weakness of that scene. The one moment in that scene that really works is when she, you know, turns to the servants who are spying on her and tells them to go to bed, and they're not quite sure if she's awake or still sleepwalking. Um, but yet no, no, I actually don't think you're alone. Um, in this at all, Sunny. I think um, okay. Certainly not from my perspective and not from other critics I've seen.
0: Um, okay good good I'm not I'm not I'm not I and I love I love Denzel's line readings in this movie because I, as you say it's like it's not he is not doing kind of standard Shakespeare it is it is there's a there's a real training day vibe, um, especially to the the last hour or so of the film as he gets like a little a little nuttier and crazier and like more uh, more more you know, violent um that that really worked for me i don't know what did you guys
2: think of the present day political connotations that are i think pretty
0: clearly there and yet don't feel forced well i did not feel i did i i, I will be honest i did not feel feel anything about modern politics watching this
2: you didn't think that it was an interesting choice to make a play about a mad king about somebody who, who whose like desire for power leads them to madness and like murder and bad decisions right now like uh, the, it, the, it's the more like the, you is like a like a choice the ballsier that has some thing, relevance the
1: ballsier thing would have been to do trump as king lear with um you know, like gender flipping sure. some of the daughters into you know, Trump's rotten sons <laughs> trying to make us feel sympathetic to him. No, I actually, I, I thought part of what was fun about watching this was the sort of the way that the production design, the costuming, et cetera, kind of takes you out of time deliberately where, you know, the costumes are, you know, sort of intended to be historically accurate, but the architecture is meant to be you know, sort of so austere and blank that it takes you out of any specific place or time. Um, I mean, I thought it was more sort of transporting for that rather than for trying to be a kind of fleeting allegory.
0: Yeah, I I thought it it did not jump out at me as particularly timely. It definitely felt timeless in the way that uh, Shakespeare frequently does.
2: I don't mean that I thought it was pushy It, I in fact thought the opposite but it did seem to me an interesting choice uh to make this particular movie now and perhaps one that was not totally unrelated to world events but possibly okay. I am just All
0: right hey hey man we all bring our we all br- we all bring our own baggage into it you know it's all right it's okay it's not
2: my baggage sonny it's, it's the world's baggage
0: everybody's Alright, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on The Tragedy of Macbeth? Peter? Thumbs up. Alyssa? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Three thumbs up. Good movie. Based on a pretty good play. (laughs) Uh, Okay, that's it for this week's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode on the Scream sequel slash soft reboot uh, and make sure to tell your friends strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences if we don't grow we'll die if you did not love today's episode please complain to me on twitter at SunnyBunch. bunch I'll convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed see you guys next week